Leah, how's it going? So well, so well. Halfway through the week, can't complain. I was going to say, we're, we're almost there. We're also almost at the end of um, a twenty at the year of the year. Um, 2023, I know, has been a, a fairly busy year for you. Um, as someone that's been listening to your podcast, especially, you know, how is how has 2023 been for you this year? Well, first of all, it's a delight to be able to identify some of our podcast guests on the longest day <laughs> because you're also anonymous. I don't know who you are. Um, but you're right. 2023 has been an absolute privilege. I, I, I founded Broadstairs Consulting. Uh, we've been operational for about 13 months and stepping into the CEO role in addition to being the founder without a business partner and trying to figure out how to be a disruptor and how to do things differently in environments that aren't necessarily receptive to that has been one of the most challenging and most rewarding things that I've ever done. So yes, 2023 has been insanely busy, but I've been able to meet people and do things that I never dreamed were possible. Well, that that's you can't ask for more than that, really. And uh, and I suppose you, you touch upon obviously the the organisation that you've set up. Do you, do you want to introduce the organisation to our listeners? Because some of some of them may not be aware of of what you've embarked on. I imagine most people are not aware because we have not got a great marketing strategy. <laughs> um, but Broadstairs Consulting, uh, I am based down in Broadstairs is a strategic advisory and mediation consultancy. We help people have challenging conversations. We help people disagree well. And we are working at board level in sports and media and politics. And we really want to transform situations by helping people rebuild trust and improve relationships, find common ground and find a way forwards. And we're a creative problem solving consultancy. And that is very exciting. Well, that's how me and you met, Leah. So I saw your Facebook posts and uh, what you were trying to get off the ground. And, um, you know, you're, you're part of uh, the, the community down there. So I know you're not originally from Broadstairs, but you've really thrown yourself into being part of the community and you contribute in lots of different ways. I know that you're on the business club. But what drove that desire to move to Broadstairs from London? How does that sort of decision come about? And um, that would be fascinating to hear. Well, everybody endured this thing called the COVID pandemic and everybody responded to that in different ways. And mm. I... I'm quite introverted, something people find fairly surprising about me. Um, but the pandemic itself was okay. I was working as a general counsel and company secretary for a prop tech company, uh, a digital mortgage broker, actually, and dealing with some of the challenging economic circumstances and managing the transactions to ensure that that business could continue as a going concern. So that kept me pretty busy for at least 90 hours a week. But in addition to that, <laughs> uh, I thought it was a good idea to write a memoir. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of the rationale for that was I was experiencing some things in real time behind the scenes of my day job that were quite challenging. And I found that prioritizing creative expression enabled me to process those things better than if I just let them rumble alongside without being addressed. And so uh, somehow, simultaneously, we managed to complete on the sale transaction to preserve 150 jobs. 
um, and sold to a US listed company. So it was very prestigious, uh, very well publicized. But I also managed to complete the book of which it's now around 95,000 words has been developmentally edited and all the things. And, and I decided two things. One, I'm a creative at heart. And two, this traditional method of working isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the countryside in North Yorkshire. I have always enjoyed the great outdoors. I have a wonderful five-year-old cab poo. Yeah. And I, I said I need to move out of London. And being <laughs> pragmatic, one took a mental spreadsheet and worked out all of the South Coast locations that uh, were amenable to a, let's say, round-trip excursion, whereby if one line was blocked, you could still get in. Uh, I narrowed things down to the Javelin and thought I would move to Margate. But one day, walking from Ramsgate to Margate, I stumbled upon Broadstairs, and I knew from that moment on that it had my heart. And I wrote about it and was shortlisted for a short story prize as a result of that piece. Um, And I found a peacefulness there, a wonderful community spirit, but also just a peacefulness of existence that I hadn't experienced anywhere for a really long time. And it drew me in and I visited week on week on week on week. And then I said, I just have to move. And my friend said, you can't buy somewhere that you haven't lived. And I said, why not? (laughs) It turns out that I couldn't because I was self-employed. But I did move and it's been the best decision that I've ever made. And it continues to be a source of joy for me going home every day. Yeah, that's good to hear. I I must admit, in the last few years, I've struggled. I've been trying, me and my wife have been trying to work out where we would like to live we, we we don't i'm not saying we don't like where we live at the moment but it's like if you know where would we ideally want to live and we haven't been able to answer that question i think one of the things that has come up time and time again um and you might be able to shed some light on this is being close to the sea now is that my wife says and i as something i do agree with those the sea has some form of energy which kind of i don't know we both feel that it kind of recharges the batteries or it just i don't know it's a very much different experience to living i suppose where i am at the moment where i'm kind of it's not semi-rural but it's not that built up but you miss like i have lived by the sea at different times and i do miss that that kind of that kind of environment so is the sea i suppose the major element of it do you think there is something about the ebb and flow of the tides and yeah. the relative inconvenience one feels when when you leave the house in the morning and realize you can't take the walk that you wanted because the tide yeah. is in. <laughs> yeah, there is that, yeah. But I think it's a I think it's a function of making and creating space. I've, I know that coastal towns are not made equally. I know that living in Deal feels very different to say living in in Margate, but there seems to be a gravitational pull of the sea that you don't get around rivers or lakes or ponds or other water features um, that just embody the kind of ebbing and flowing of life. And uh, I don't know, I just feel a sense of freedom, both of experience and of opportunity. And it's just the way that I clear my head. I, I, I love it. But I also think that 
places do call to us and mm. you just haven't found your place yet. I know. Maybe, that's, maybe that's, what you need is a chocolate box village that is wonderfully yeah. idyllic and nowhere near the sea. I this is I, I, like I say I don't I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm going to be moving to the sea. I don't <laughs> know. As I say, we we we're struggling to work out where I, the 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 ideal place. Simon, you, you need to take I, more mini breaks. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I need to. But Simon, you, you're the same. Like you've you yeah. you left Broadstairs, yeah. but you it drew you drew you back, didn't it? No, exactly. I grew up in Portsmouth, uh, so I live by the sea in a naval town. So that's a lot different, a lot more industrial and a lot more lively. And then uh, I lived in London. And then as I had a child, we moved out to Tunbridge Wells and then to Broadstairs. So I lived in Broadstairs when the pandemic hit, you know, similar to what you've said, Leah, people do strange things. Me and my family moved to Spain at that time. We sold our property in Broadstairs uh, stupidly. Uh, and then when we found out that my son couldn't settle and wanted to come back, um, you know, we, we recognised that the prices had gone through the roof and it was ridiculous what they were charging now in Broadstairs comparison to what we bought at. So now we we live in Ramsgate, and uh, but we were drawn back to Thanet and uh, particularly we do love the coastal towpath. We love the community here. We love the way that people interact. So I'm definitely on board with your choice because, um, you know, Thanet does get a bit of a bashing from the rest of Kent in, in relation to deprivation. But I think it does have a real sense of community that you don't find in a lot of other places, especially we didn't find it in Tunbridge Wells, which had a, a one-upmanship and a competitiveness that, you know, wasn't very inclusive. Um, so the, 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 the fascinating thing for me is um, what drove you in a way to want to leave London. Um, I know there's that seeking of space, the Yorkshire element of the countryside and that space that you find. But was there a career link to that and changes in career alongside it? Was there several things going along at the same time? Or, you know, it sounds like COVID, um, but was there a variety of things that were, you know, being weighed up in your mind you know about why am i why am i doing this what do i need for my life because it sounds like that creative bit is where i've sort of gone you know do you get inspiration from being coastal or is that inspiration that creativity always been there those are great questions and i think i'm going to say both and so zooming back in time to about yeah. 2014 mm -hmm. when I was writing what is officially my first book that will never see the light of day um I was writing a book on becoming more like Jesus and desiring more of him it was called Delta which as you can imagine was all about water and the life cycle of um going from a very tiny spring all the way out to sea and so all of my weekend writing mini breaks were dotting around the UK to various water locations for inspiration. Right. And so I'd visited, for example, Brighton quite a lot. And um, I'd been to Hastings, which I went to once and didn't return to. Um, <laughs> and I went to various other parts uh, across the, the UK. Uh, and I'd never been to, to East Kent. So there was a bit of, I recognize the, the, the opportunity for creative inspiration, but you're quite right, Simon. I decided to embrace self-employment. And mm. so as 
I knew I didn't need to be in the office and I could work from anywhere, I said, right, well, I, I will work from anywhere and I can build a practice that works for me and that enables me to have a portfolio career, which was a, a, a marked departure from anything that I thought that I would be doing in my career. I think lawyers often get pigeonholed into career progression in a manner that is very formulaic. So if you're a private practice lawyer, you continue on at the firm until you reach the unattainable goal of becoming a a partner. And Mm -hmm. if you are an in-house lawyer, you strive until you become general counsel and then maybe get promoted in a bigger organization to chief legal officer. And if you really want to become something, then you do that in a listed company. And and that's kind of the, the way that the progression evolves. But neither of those things were what I'd originally started in my career. I'd, I'd gone to the bar. I wanted to be an advocate. I wanted to be a, a chancery barrister. And I had grand designs on being self-employed from Mm -hmm. the very beginning of my my legal career and because that didn't happen there was kind of a subconscious that was a good lifestyle for me and I knew that that was something that I always wanted but I hadn't figured out how to make that work with the the skills and the career progression that had kind of been forced on me by function of the decisions that I'd made along the way and I, I think the other thing is lawyers are renowned for not taking risks and I just don't have that profile. Mm. So I, I was both a very, very, very commercial lawyer. And I also had a very high risk appetite. And so I was very willing to step into to things and, and, and spaces and places and do something unorthodox because to me, it didn't feel unorthodox. And so I'm just gonna go and get on with it. And so I think all of those things coupled with a desire to rest, to create space, to um, start somewhere anew, to be able to walk my dog on the beach, to find new friends and to set a new pace of life, which I must confess, stepping into entrepreneurialism, we're not there yet, but I am building <laughs> so that one day I can have a better work-life balance. Um, this move uh, afforded that. And I think so often we don't create the space to be able to take stock and to figure out why are we having certain challenges in terms of either the way we're leading or the way that other people see us. And I I wasn't at any point trying to reinvent myself. I was just trying to recenter myself in what mm. I had lost because of the environments that I was in, in, encountering on a day-to-day basis professionally. And also, I had never intended to stay in London that long. I, yeah. I, I had come down and I had done my bar exams. And I thought, okay, well, when I finish that, I'll go back up to Yorkshire and I'll practice as a barrister up there. And it didn't happen. And I, I got sucked into the magic circle corporate lifestyle and um, convinced that if I wanted to continue doing the type of public M&A and private M&A work I was doing, I, I needed to stay in London. And then before I knew it, I owned a property and then I was bound to stay there. And I said, you know what, I can walk away from all of this and that will be OK if that is the best decision for me. And um, I, I say I moved to Broadstairs in 2022, but actually the ink only dried on the sale of the property about seven weeks ago. So it has been a, a long process. Yeah. And um, go on, Dave. All I was going to ask was, um, and I come at this because I know a lot of our listeners have, are either at or they've already got past the point but where they're at a crossroads in their life, where they actually maybe not ha- unhappy, maybe not the correct term, but they, they, 
they they want to find something else in their life and they're wanting to go in a different direction now obviously you've gone past that point um <laughs> and you know where you are now i suppose what was the hardest bit you've talked about you had a house you had a good job things like that what was the hardest bit i suppose from maybe walking away from that to pursue what you actually wanted to do i know i know that that might sound a bit uh, convoluted but i think a lot of our listeners struggle with that concept of walking away from the comfort i suppose to taking the leap it, and it sounds like you did that leap fairly effortless it, am i right to assume that or <laughs> it was not effortless and <laughs> I, I i feel embarrassed of anybody who who thinks that it was and they should ask my closest friends some of whom find my life far too stressful to speak to me on a regular basis um but but i think the first thing is you need to know why you're stepping into something different and i've i've mentioned this anecdote in public spaces before but when I finished the exit transaction, um, I, I actually was recruited to be the CEO of another startup. And I couldn't understand why somebody would want me to be a CEO. I, I just, I couldn't see it. I, I didn't believe that I could do it. I really struggled with the idea that I could figure out a path to get from where I was to who I needed to be to be able to fulfill that role. And um, if you fast forward another six months, I, I clearly did get there doing something that is in alignment with my own vision and values. But somebody said to me during that time, Leah, if there is anything that you could be doing right now, if money was no object, if resources in terms of personnel uh, were provided to you, what would you do? And I didn't even blink. I didn't pause for thought. I didn't pause for breath. I just said, oh, that's really easy. I would be Olivia Pope from Scandal. And this is a Shonda Rhimes drama. Um, for those who don't know, it's a, a political <laughs> melodrama um, where Kerry Ross Washington is the, the main character. And she is very, very involved in US politics and kind of calling all the shots and being a fixer and solving problems that most people don't even know that they have and commanding a huge sum for doing so. And I said, I've got those skills. I could go and do that. I've got a fairly similar uh, parental background to Olivia Pope. And I, I, I am obsessed with politics. And, and this seems like a really great life choice. And they said to me, yeah, that makes sense. But why aren't you doing it? Mm, and yeah. I said, I don't know how. And I sat on that I don't know how for 12 months until somebody said, Leah, why haven't you incorporated the company yet? which then created a whole existential question about what do I call it? But in that intervening period, a lot of different things happened. I needed to believe that I could generate income as a self-employed person. I needed to believe that I wasn't just a lawyer. I needed to believe that I could cultivate a vision and bring people along with me in that vision. I needed to believe that I knew where I was trying to get to and believe in myself that that was achievable. And the reason I say all of those things is because as a 16 year old girl, the number one piece of advice I was given was Leah, you have to learn to believe in yourself. And fast forward to 34 year old Leah, still did not know how to believe in herself. And so the whole process of becoming an entrepreneur has been about making peace with the stuff that I've lived with and I've been able to hide from 
because I've cultivated skills that don't require me to engage with those things, which deem me to be successful, but I haven't actually addressed the things that have held me back. And so to step into that, what you say is effortless, um, <laughs> new zone has been so, so painful because what I have had to stand against is myself, my own self-doubt and my own lack of self-belief that I can do the things that I've set out to do. And ironically, my friends and people who know me have an infallible belief in my ability to do things. But I haven't believed it. And so part of this year has been overcoming that so that I am able to step in unapologetically to say, I have a vision and my vision is for the benefit of all. It is an impactful vision. And I want to bring people along with me in that. But I cannot carry around this baggage that is preventing me from achieving that. Otherwise, we'll never get to the destination. See that, I'll be honest, you've summarized a lot of conversations we've had with people that, similar to yourself, have started an entrepreneurial journey or even a, a lot further down it. That baggage that you speak of comes up time and time again it may they may not refer to it as baggage but this whole kind of i don't know self-identity or just generally getting it squared off in their mind actually what they're pursuing or what they've what the journey been like I, we haven't had anyone refer to it in that way about the baggage thing and i think that's the best I've way I've heard of of summarizing it because I think it, it it's an issue that a lot of people experience it's just kind of I suppose I if you'd gone into the entrepreneurial world straight from school would you be in you know would you have that baggage I suppose but most people don't go into the world like that and I suppose it's it's a lot of people we speak to kind of struggle to comprehend the whole thing um and i suppose my question off the back of that is you 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 sounds like you've actually managed to kind of square that away in in your way of thinking but if you had to do that again um so i suppose looking back maybe 6 12 months or or, or when you started your journey if i'm honest do you think there were there could have been things you could have done at that point that could have made that process more straightforward i know that's hindsight's a wonderful thing but it, it, it's the reason i'm drawn to this is just, it comes up time and time again mm. and it's it's a it's a block to a lot of people so it, it's always good to hear someone like yourself that's got a, a good handle on of, of what you've had to overcome those are all good questions because you posed about four um, I, I hit you with a few there <laughs> the, the, the first thing is i would have had different issues if i'd gone mm. straight from school and i think part of that would have been performativism because i would have been doing it because somebody had told me that i was good at it or that i should do it or um it will benefit me or the people around the table in in some way and there's nothing that beats life experience when you're going to be making major changes. But I'm a real advocate for every day is a new opportunity to make a fresh start. So it, it depends on the circumstance. The journey was not six to 12 months by any means. And I say this because when you write a trauma memoir, you go over a lot of this stuff. You, you know yourself, you're introspective, you weigh things up, you ask for people's opinions, you speak in depth to a therapist, you um, try and 
reframe things and you're you're constantly focused on improving yourself whether you like it or not because you have to wrestle with those things that are features in the way that you were brought up or the way that you're presenting now or the way that you're responding to difficult situations i say all of this because when you write a book like that you assume that you have dealt with all of the things that you have written about and the rude awakening that i experienced this year was that I really hadn't. And the ways in which I hadn't were because there were still chronic strands of fear of rejection, uh, not willing to be uncomfortable with being uncomfortable, and a lack of patience that created a sense of failure where there wasn't one, that created a sense of inadequacy that didn't exist, and that prevented me from backing myself when there was no one around the table to do it for me. I would say that the breakthrough has only really come in the last couple of months. And that, you know, it's a very vulnerable thing to say. I, I spent six months doing um, EMDR, which for those who, who don't know it, it's the rapid eye desensitization um, where the balls go across the screen and you're supervised by a clinician they track your progress. I've actually done that through a virtual virtual reality program, which has been a great privilege to be a guinea pig for. But it has transformed the way that I process truth about myself, about my experience, um, track achievements and recognize progress and interact with myself and interact with my team. Because for me, the, the business that I run and the way that I run it matters. I can't afford to be a hypocrite if I'm working with board advisors or if I'm working to advise a board, I have to do what I'm expecting my clients to do. And, and I found that was a very, very tall order that I wasn't willing to let go of. And so I had to engage in the process that enabled me to be that so that I could offer that and so that I could share empathy in that so that I could be the company leader that I'm to be and that's what's been really hot yeah um amazing amazing because what's coming through and we've had it with other guests especially uh, david wilkes um who's had challenges with um his mental health and well-being at certain times and trauma that he's had around injuries that he occurred through his adolescence and then in the latter stages of his life with his wife and partner not being able to have children and I'm looking at that and going, what supported you through the trauma that you've highlighted there? And we don't expect you to talk about the trauma unless you actually wanted to. But what gives you the drive to keep moving forward, to keep progressing? Because I deliver mental health courses. And it's one of the big things I say to people is just make incremental steps forward to where you want to be and find ways that work for you. So you, you touched on some therapy there, so which sounds quite cutting edge and you know, but what, what's helped you keep on track and keep moving forward? I describe myself as a committed person of faith. And whilst some of the faith-related experiences that I have had growing up have been unorthodox, <laughs> um, I, I have this real sense of understanding of who I am and what I've been called to do and the unlearning process is something that I've had to engage in to be able to fulfill 
that mm. purpose. And so a lot of people have been renowned, particularly in the 90s, um, with the maxim, uh, faith is just a crutch for the weak. And I really want to disagree with that. <laughs> I, I There is no way that I could have been empowered with the bravery and the conviction and the tenacity and even just a desire to hold out reconciliation to people who have been horrible without some kind of cognition of it being about everything else but me mm -hmm. and there's there's been a wonderful opportunity to embody humility that isn't held out in our world as something to be espoused that is such a core tenant of the christian faith um as well as that that gentleness and that peacefulness and that joy and my experiences have been such that I shouldn't be able to be any of that. Hmm. I shouldn't have a gentle and quiet spirit. I shouldn't be able to work in, in, in toxic, dysfunctional situations and maintain a sense of secure identity and um, an awareness of how I am passing through that space and making space for others without that deep centered deep seated understanding of, of who I am and, and what's my responsibility and what's somebody else's responsibility. And I, I think that for me, I'm grateful for a God who shares himself in his word in a way that resonates with my experiences. There is no disconnect there in terms of God has promised us an idyllic life. And, um, you know, if you do all of these things, you'll have an idyllic life. I don't expect that. That has not been my experience. But what I have known is the faithfulness and the support of a God who has invested in me personally and cares for my well-being and delights in my obedience as I try to serve him day in, day out. And the community of other like-minded believers who walk with me as I endure these difficult decisions or um, challenging moments or actually celebrate the great joys as we we have successes and victories as a business or I have personal triumphs. Um, that community has kept me centered. It, it, it kept me humble as a lawyer um, when I, I, I needed a sense of perspective. Um, I needed a sense of collective responsibility and a desire to invest in more than what I could just see around me. Um, but it also gives me a purpose because I know that it, my university college motto was not for ourselves alone. And I, and I very much embody that. And so much of what we do as a consultancy is about ensuring that everything that we do is for the benefit of others. We've got to get ourselves out of the way. And that is the posture of a mediator. That is another privilege. But it seems to me that that resonates mostly with my faith. And it's driven through that. It's driven through um, an understanding that God has created a world where we need to relate to each other better, where we need to be able to not just disagree well, but live in harmony and live peaceably with one another. And that is really what we're about, is holding that out and, and helping um, infuse that through communities that we engage with day in, day out. Yeah, um, that, that's amazing. You know, because um, I was brought up in the Catholic faith as a child. Um, I, I, I don't resonate with that anymore, but I've become more of a humanist. And that's where I would see how I sit in relation to that. 
that side of my life. And as similar to you, I, I'm on an entrepreneurial journey. I, you know, I've always worked for people and I've transitioned over the last few years. And I, I'm just reading a book at the moment. I don't know if you've come across it or Dave has. Uh, it's Think and Grow Rich. And there's elements of that manifestation. What do you want you to look like in the future? And once you can start to visualize that and work towards that, then you can start to become that. Is that uh, an element of, well, uh, in, within your life, do you use anything um, like skills like that to go, well, where do I want to be in the future? What do I want this to look like? And how do I then put the steps in place to achieve that? That's a really good question. I am not a supporter of manifestation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the things that I would draw out is that people who have sustained traumatic experiences or um, abuse tend to catastrophize. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's much more important to be content in the present and to mm -hmm. be able to live well in the present than to be fixated on the future. Right. And I think the, the journey for me has been about understanding that there is good and that there is joy and that there is more and that there is a life of abundance and that that is not something that has been withheld from me that is not something that is unavailable to me i can desire that but i can also receive that um but i think for me i don't need to manifest it to get there mm -hmm. i just need to be present and use the skills and the gifts that I have in the present and trust that as I faithfully deploy those, I will move closer to whatever the objective is or, or whatever the desire is. And I, I, I feel like for me, that that's a really big deal because I think I had a long season of believing that there, there is no green pasture here. You will never reach over the horizon into the sunshine. It's just gonna be horrendous forever. And I remember, I think it was about six years ago that I realized that, oh no, that, that's an indictment that I'm speaking over my own life. Mm. Like, get rid of the clouds. You take your clouds mm. back. I don't want them. Because actually, if I accept who I am right now, I can see the beauty in what I have right now. And therefore mm -hmm. I don't need this relentless striving to be somewhere else. Yeah, yeah I, that's a good point. Like, And I'm just kind of thinking through things from my perspective. I. I like Simon says um, about that man, if I can even say it, manifestation uh, that's, that's brought up in that book. But also there's a number of other books out there that have obviously had um, quite a lot of prominence. On. I, I think like The Secret's probably like one of the most famous ones for the manifestation. But you're right. Like, it, I, And I must admit, looking back at the stages of my life, I've always been focused on the horizon. I haven't always been focused on the now um and i suppose um it it, it it's always I, I don't know where i've got that kind of view but the way you describe concentrating on what you're experiencing now is actually a good way to look at things i know as i said that it's that horizon perspective that i seem to have always been focused on um you obviously meet a, a varied range of people. Is that a common thing that you find? Is is that, I suppose, the manifestation approach or just generally, are people so more, much more focused on 
I, and actually this draws on what we've spoken with other people people seem to be focused on what's ahead of them but also what others are doing as well and they always lose track of kind of where they are is that something you see in a lot of people yeah so again quite a few things in that so i think the first yeah. thing is we have an escapist culture and we would yeah. always rather be where somebody else is yeah and we'll try to get there by any means necessary tiktok influencers case in point mm. The particular challenge for entrepreneurs is that they are by definition visionary and therefore they don't live in the present. Yeah. And um, I've had to explain this to our investors quite a lot um, because they assume that I'm also in that camp. And I'm like, oh yeah, but I'm a lawyer. I've also got the mm. detail. So I'm not going to suggest something that doesn't work. So I, <laughs> I've thought about that already um, and I'm driving my team nuts and I know that. But it's the both and again, and it's the holding those things in tension of, yes, we have to know where we're going, but we also have to take stock of where we are now. And we have to make sure that we're not pushing ourselves too far out in that ambition. And, and one of the reasons I have thought about this so much is because I have a disappointment complex. I, I, I get very, very upset when something seems achievable to me and I can't figure out how to get there or it takes me longer than I think it should. And I've, I've really had to let go of the ways in which I try to reach or attain a vision. And I actually went to a TEDx event a couple of weeks ago, and there was this fantastic young girl who had been through a huge amount, extremely experienced presenter, speaker, uh, practitioner, and she was all on visualization. And I think we need to create spaces where we dream. I think yeah. we 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 squeeze out the dreamer in our in our personalities and in our lives because we're not encouraged to pursue whatever that that vision is or whatever those dreams uh, are because they tend to be inconvenient and they disrupt whatever the family setup we have is or you know where we're living or um, how much money is in the bank. But there is something about continually pressing into that that helps both with contentment in the present because you know where you are and you know what you want and therefore you can work to address the discontent. Um, but there's also a, is there something about your values and the way in which you're passing in the world now that you're actually subconsciously pressing yourself into something else? That if you don't take heed of those dreams, you're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, and I, I'm still fascinated with the present because it's something that I've always encouraged in people to appreciate and accept what's here and now. But it's a skill to yeah. appreciate and be in that present moment and get the balance right. I think you're touching on it here of I need to have direction, not just for me, but for others that I'm leading. Yeah. But how do I get that direction but still say, I'm at the core of who I am and for others to be on board with that, because that communication of that is a is another key element. So could you give us a little bit more detail? How does that present and look for you? Yeah, we're putting you on the spot with a lot of questions <laughs> there. <laughs> we're so, not holding back. My, my team might be a better group of people to ask this than, than I am, but. I try to take a consultative approach and that there is something about 
leadership where the buck sits with you and you bear the risk and you have to step in when when things haven't gone quite as you planned. But I do think that that element of bringing people with you and trusting that the more minds, the more holes are poked in what you're doing and therefore the more likely you are to get to an executable vision. Um, And it's hard to do that without putting the burden of that process on the people that are opining in it. But as a business, we have found that if we really want to do something, we're much better approaching the task to say, what do you think about this? How do you feel about this? Than saying, this is what we're going to do. Do you want to come on board? Hmm. Because giving people agency in decision-making and also respecting them through that creation of opportunity for them to give their opinion is something that I think is an underutilized leadership skill. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we as leaders are encouraged to be really set in our ways and, oh, you know, we're responsible for the vision and we're responsible for executing. And we're resp- Yes, of course. But we're not infallible and we're not superhuman. And there are things that we will miss because we're chronically overtired and overstretched and juggling too many things. And so I think the onus there is who are you trusting to opine on your vision and your strategy? Who are you asking for input? There was something about, um, I had a, a mentor who encouraged me to draw concentric circles and to set out my wider community um, based on the inner circle and the outer circle and then the people who have no business being in the circles. And I found it a very infuriating exercise because then I needed to figure out who was in my life. But there is something about choosing people who have different skills than you do, who have different experiences or different backgrounds or different way of processing information or who know you really well or who don't know you at all. And having a collection of those to be able to improve your leadership. Um, and, you know, as you say, Simon, I, I've met a range of people mm. uh, in life, but certainly in the last 18 months. And I very much use those relationships to bounce ideas or to say, I'm really struggling with this thing. How do you deal with this? Um, or we're really alike in this. Do you have this problem too? And I think as leaders, it's very hard to create that space to include that road testing Mm. in the deployment process, but I think it's critical to success. Yeah. So really, really great answer in that collaborative element of how things work. You know, we spoke with lots of other leaders who take a similar approach and it seems to be one that I think is the most empowering for everyone involved in that process and they're invested because like you said they've got agency and autonomy in relation to i trust you to go forward and do these things so where did that get shaped in yourself is there a, a way that you've come up was it learning and development of your own or is someone else sort of influenced this and uh, you know you you've sort of adopted it or you know because it, it's always good to see how these things come about in people yeah so you remember how I said that I was an in-house corporate lawyer? Yeah. Mm. The bad experiences. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> so so throughout my entire career, I, I made a just after I was a, a law student, 
and I was in my second job post bar exams and I said when I progress through this organization I'm not going to treat people the way that they've treated me or my colleagues at this level because even if the rest of the organization continues to do that I'm not going to do that and if I'm really honest I feel like my entire career has been people behaving badly and not taking responsibility for the ways in which they're behaving badly and me saying what well, I want to be an agent of change. I, I believe we can do this better. I believe we can do this differently. And I'm standing up above the parapet and saying, this is what it would look like to do this differently. And some some situations embrace that. Some situations, my tenure is over. And, and that is absolutely fine. But it's enabled me to say, okay, well, if I know how I would do this differently, and if I now have an opportunity to do this differently, maybe I'll do it this way. And that has served me really well. Um, because if we're not learning from the mistakes of people that have either caused us hardship or have caused other people hardship, when we have an opportunity to do that, we will be the butt of the bad joke, we will be the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so yes, it's it's been from the challenging difficult, frustrating environments. They say, you know, a good career is where you've um, been promoted, when you've uh, been fired, um, when you've pivoted, when you've done all of those things. And um, I remember being very, very embarrassed about the fact that I'd been asked to leave a job, a job which subsequently rescinded the ejection but that's another story for another podcast on another day right. yeah and uh, I, I did I felt very ashamed because I was like but it was unfair mm -hmm. it was it was inappropriate and you did a u-turn so it was clearly not the right decision um but I was like no because I've I've learned from that in a way that I did not have the right values to persist in that organization and that is about mm -hmm. me making a bad choice to try and stay somewhere where I was a square peg in a round hole but also, I never want to treat somebody like that, no matter how I believe they are underperforming, no matter how I believe they could be doing things differently or maybe have disrespected somebody or maybe have brought a client um, pain and suffering or brought the business into disrepute. That, none of that matters. I have a responsibility to treat people well, and I want to do that differently. Mm -hmm. And that's, I suppose as you've said it's those negative experiences that have shaped you i suppose taking a step back from that what and there may be people listening i don't know that that are looking for a career in the legal space um what i suppose are the positives you saw of working in that area obviously you've now moved out of that area so um you know it, obviously it wasn't there for you but what what I suppose the positives that you saw um, in that space that, that I suppose maybe you sh you share you you've learned from now I suppose. So, when you are a part of a C-suite, or when you are a member of a senior management team, you're surrounded. There's there's people who are having a fairly similar experience day to day uh, yeah. as you are. And there are people that you can talk to, some you might like or trust more than others, but there's a, a camaraderie and a sense of collegiality uh, about that. 
there's a part of me that misses that. Hmm. Um, there's a part of me that can see how that's really good for development and having that kind of safety of the infrastructure of this is an established business that's going to keep ticking over. There's no immediate threat to survival hmm. or, or um, business as usual. That That is great. Um, I also think established client bases and, um, you know, interesting work that just kind of appears mm. and the the respect and thanks that you get from, from colleagues when you help them with their, their various issues. I mean, there's no shadow of a doubt in my mind that a legal career is immensely rewarding. Mm. And there's also no shadow of a doubt in my mind that I would not be able to do what I am doing now without the background and the benefit of that career. You are taught to think in a particular way as a lawyer. And this all sits in my little unlearning bucket mm. because there is a judgmentalism about it that you have to set aside when you're trying to um, be an executive and when you're trying to be a people manager. And so there's a consciousness of learning about yourself and how you pass through the world that you can kind of avoid as a as a lawyer and you can be very process driven and in at times relational, but predominantly process driven. Um, and so it lends itself very well to a particular personality type. And you can go really far with a very specific area of expertise. You can have an international career. Um, you can progress through an organization. You can move sideways. A lot of people go into COO or HR roles. Um, many lawyers now are becoming CEOs of businesses that they've previously mm. been in the legal spot for. And I'm so excited about that because 10 years ago, um, people told us that as lawyers, we could never be an NED because nobody would want a lawyer on the board. So I yeah. feel like that's a massive development. That's a good point. Like, And sorry to interrupt around that, but I, I, we always, we, again, we come back to this quite a bit. We see what's going on in the United States and now that kind of fluidity in terms of you're not bracketed as a lawyer. There's, you know, some, there is lawyers running some massive companies. There's lawyers that have started um, and founded some now massive companies. Do you think the US is less rigid in terms of, um, you know, bracketing someone with with kind of a, a job title, and then it kind of limits where they can move, or or, or is that is that the, I'm not saying the same, but is that are we are we similar? I suppose here in the UK to that. I th I think there's been a real move to recognise the 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 broadness and the mm. scope of the role of commercial lawyers, and and there's just. I think there's been a societal shift, whereas before people would uh, join a company and they would be there for 25 years or yeah. 40 years in some cases. Yeah. And that is not the case anymore. And so you can have somebody who leaves the partnership at a law firm, goes and runs this organization for three years, says, right, I've achieved what I set out to achieve. Now I'm going to go back into a different law firm and I'm going to do something different. And there's a dynamism to the process. And I think because mm. um, we don't see people in a homogenous way anymore, there's a lot more opportunity. And I think even in the UK, I really feel like um, there's been a great movement towards allowing people to go after the jobs that they want to have, not the ones that people presume they are able to do and so that open-mindedness i think people are a little bit more willing to take risks because mm. lawyers as you say are seen as commercial advisors first and yeah. um 
no people second. And there's just been a revolution. Yeah. The whole system has been revolutionized in the way that lawyers are seen and their utility to a business and not being seen as a cost center anymore. And, 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 you know, there's a board that I'm being interviewed at the, at the moment and, and they're like, we, we want the way that a lawyer thinks and the way that you see around corners and the way that you identify issues that other people don't pick up on and you know when to take action and when to say, oh, no, no, don't worry about that right now. And I, I think there is a business judgment that lawyers learn faster than other people around the table that is really, really important to capitalize on. And I've seen this in the way that I run Broadstairs Consulting there are risks that young lawyer Leah wouldn't have even dreamed of taking, but that I'm absolutely willing to take because they just don't matter, or I don't need to do this thing, or I don't need to mitigate that risk, or I don't need to take action over there. Um, and it's not because when it blows up, I'll deal with it. It's because I just don't need to take action on it at all. And that kind of executive decision making, I think, is something that lawyers are quite good at. So I'm fascinated because you've got a wonderful blend of different things going on in your life. You know, you've got mediation, yeah. <laughs> you've got being an author, um, consultancy, podcasting, public speaking, uh, professional speaking. What do these elements bring to your life? Because um, when I, I think of this, and I've just written it down now, is generalism versus specialism. So there's a there's a blend there uh, around. It seems like you you've got a few fingers in different pies and. You know, um, you, I suppose you probably don't scale them and say this is my top priority to this because it sounds like it is you as that person, that person being present. So could you give us more insights into, you know, those different elements and how they contribute positively to your life? I think I just for a really long time didn't realize that I was an activist. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, it all really sits under that. And, and I say this because... I remember when I was doing legal applications, uh, post postgrad legal applications, everyone was like, why do you want to be a lawyer? And I was like, I don't, I want to be a diplomat, but that's not available mm. to me. So I'm going to be a lawyer. And there was this whole, you know, justice, justice, justice. And I was like, yes, I have an inbuilt sense of justice. I have <laughs> fairness, right and wrong, morality, I'm there. But beyond that, not so much. And then when you switch from being um, in dispute resolution, to being a corporate lawyer and black letter law and um, being more commercial, it's a totally different legal landscape. So I really struggled to hang my hat on, why do you want to be a lawyer? And the thing that I'd said all along was that I solve problems. I have a mm -hmm. brain that solves problems and even better if they're people problems because then I get to help someone. And the activism and a desire to speak to use my voice to speak into situations that improve the well-being or the opportunity of others is really what sits behind the speaking and the writing. I wrote my book for the one because I was like, if I can help one person who's going through the things that I went through so that they feel less alone and so that they feel able to believe that even if their circumstances don't change, they can change. The business, we want to impact one director at a time. We want to help one sports club or one politician or one media organization because that is success to us. And there are some things that kind of don't really seem like 
they could form part of this wonderful portfolio mm. like my violin playing where does that go I don't know um <laughs> but at some point and and you know playing sports and having been a um a national athlete at university we are whole beings mm. uh we we are not homogenous in any way and for me sports and music has always been an outlet it has been the way that i process some of the things that i'm experiencing in real time so that i can go into these spaces and be whatever i need to be and i needed the both and and mm -hmm. i wasn't able to have a legal career and be the person that I needed to be to run the legal function in the businesses in the ways that allowed me to have that whole experience. Um, and so if there's anything about becoming an entrepreneur and stepping into this new season of life, it has been about embodying integrity, being able to be an authentic person who is living a life of wholeness, that everything that I do is moving in the same direction. And that's why I feel able to do all of these different facets and hold them in tension because it's all going in the same direction. No, that's a really great answer. Um, you know, because my sister's friend is a barrister and she was really self-driven, paid for it all herself. She works in temple in chambers. Um, but the work-life balance element of it, you know, she's, what, 47 now, childless. Um, lives in London, has really made lots of sacrifices to get to that. And I, I was just wondering if, you know, your personal vision for your life, sometimes is that in conflict with that um, legal sort of world? Because you think, actually, I, I want something different. I don't want to just be so career focused in that corporate world that I want to experience other things. Um, and did that play a part in some of your decision making as well that you thought, actually, I would like a richer life rather than just that. Because I sometimes think of my sister's friend and I just worry for her. And I don't know if it's right for me to worry for her because I haven't had proper conversations about where she's at with that. But um, she's she found it really difficult world because of the the type of male characters within that world and the pressure she was put under because they were mainly Cambridge and um, Oxford graduates and they had a very fixed perception of things. And I didn't know if you know it's that world is it inclusive and welcoming or is it a, a, you know can be quite brutal and unwelcoming in, in in certain ways life is what we make of it mm. and at each point we have agency to make different decisions and mm -hmm. we are the only people who need to live with the decisions that we make at any given point in time i have a vision for life that I am pressing into, but I've had to take the time to work on myself mm -hmm. so that I'm able to step into it. And, and that's really why I made the shift because I recognized that if I didn't make a change, I wasn't able to achieve what I most wanted. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to be the person that I wanted to be. I wasn't able to show up in my relationships in a way that was clean and friction free and attributed that responsibility that I was talking to you about well, and not so much free of conflict, but you know, where I'm able to advocate for myself in situations well and um, be respectful of others in the process of, of doing so. And, and there have been a huge number of legacies from, from trauma that very easily could have kept me in a legal role, in a, mm -hmm. in a subordinate role. 
And yes, every decision that I have made has has been to step into what I want for myself. And that's why I say, you know, I'm not quite there yet, but mm -hmm. I'm I'm engaging in that process and I am absolutely getting there. And I think that the changes that I've made, particularly over the last 12 months, have made a seismic difference in my ability to attain them than if I hadn't been brave at each of those steps to continue walking in that direction. And I think it's being unapologetic about what you want. Mm. And um, people like people who know what they stand for. Um, yeah. But there, there is, there is. People always say to me, "Oh, Leah, we always know where we stand with you." And I never think it's a compliment. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 there, there is, there is something about that determination to say, "No, no, 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 no. I, I, I know what's good for me." And it doesn't matter whether anybody else agrees with it or not. For some people, that's financial security. For some people, that is um, having children, no matter how difficult that is for them. For some people, it's um, owning a holiday home in the south of France. Um, for some people, it's having 10 children. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever it might be. And um, I'm fairly tight-lipped about what, what those things are for me. But I... I'm glad that I'm not in a situation where I wake up every day and I worry that if I don't make a change, I'm going to wake up at 40 and not mm. have anything to show yeah. for, for those dreams. And I, I wish that I engaged with my friends in a way that they reminded me of what my dreams are, but I, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't operate that way. I'm, I'm very private about things like that. Um, but I'm excited that this experience that I've had in doing things that I thought was impossible in leading in ways that I didn't know I was capable of in trailblazing in environments that I thought would never welcome me. And in being, um, you know, I've met such incredible people that mm. I had no idea existed. Um, some are on this call who have helped me in inordinate <laughs> ways yeah, or just encouraged me along the way. And mm. that's that's part of it. You know, are we living joyfully? Are we thankful for what we 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 have in front of us and how we've gotten here, however hard that might have been? Mm -hmm. And I would much rather be able to say, hey, I get to celebrate that than oh, I'm not quite where I want to be yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a brilliant way to look at it. And I think, as you said, it, it uh, yeah, it it it, it uh, we kind of ask similar questions to other guests, and as I said again, not everyone can succinctly answer those questions quite as well as you can. I what I wanted to do take a step back to I suppose the fingers in pies. Um, one of the things that <laughs> we taught I touched upon at the beginning was your podcast. Now, not everyone may have heard your podcast, but do you want to give us a I suppose the blurb on on the podcast because I think there will be a lot of potential listeners listening that didn't know about it, but they will start listening. So give us the well, give give us our elevator pitch on the podcast. Well, I am the host of the Longest Day, and we, Broadstairs Consulting, run the Longest Day podcast. It is an opportunity for leaders to share their difficult experiences. Um, we originally 
set up as a crisis podcast because mm. we said crisis is an inevitability. It's um, a when, not an if. And so we wanted to interrogate these crisis situations and, and see how leaders experience those, what happened, who did they have around them, what did they do about it, what did they learn, uh, what would they do differently. And that was very much the format for it. And we've retained that format and we've rebranded as a leadership podcast because what we're really trying to do is say, I'm helping other people be better leaders by sharing my experiences. Because often we go through those difficult things and we don't speak about them ever again. Hmm. And we don't credit the people that we had around us. Um, so for instance, um, the longest day is about 15 to 25 minutes each episode. So you can listen to it whilst you're doing the washing up or um, some people do yoga while they listen to it, which I find extraordinary. Um, and for example, when I invited um, David Lammy MP to share his longest day, he said, well, actually Leah, like, could I speak about the Tottenham riots? I've never had an opportunity to reflect on that in any forum like i would love to do that when can i do that it's like well, mm, do mm. that on the 7th of <laughs> august um and, and 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 so it also creates a space for reflection where people are encouraged as they share and we cool camera someone jumping into the podcast <laughs> Yeah. my I'm, dog's I'm, just entered the office apologies for that no no, no that's okay <laughs> um but yes long story short um we interview really interesting people in sports politics and media on their longest days and it's very accessible it's very interesting and we are looking for a sponsor so if anybody finds that interesting and would like to sponsor us please let me know we'll put a link in the show notes uh to the episodes because as i say i've listened to a few of them and they are very very good and the the broad um array of people from so many different backgrounds is really really impressive i think like you said you mentioned obviously david lammy but uh, you you recently recorded one with vince cable as well and it isn't just politicians but they're the two that i think that, that may jump out to a lot of people but you've got a, such a diverse range of people how have you found speaking to these different people from all these different backgrounds do you see common traits in them or you know what kind of when you have those conversations but what's the kind of things that you've drawn from that i suppose so i'd be interested to know if simon resonates with this but hmm. people love to talk hmm. and to unburden themselves if there is a a safe place for them to land you know, I get to the end of podcast interviews and they say, I can't believe I just shared so much with you. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, I, I, I can, you know, that, 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 yeah. that's mm. what I do. We want to model listening well because so much of our public discourse is not about listening to understand. It's about listening to be heard and it, and it doesn't work. And so if we want to show and model that we can have conversations with people that we don't agree with politically or yeah. that have a totally different ideology on gender than we do or have a totally different idea of faith, I really want to talk to you. I want to understand why you think what you think. I want to see your experiences and I want to hear from you in your own words about what you've learned because it's only in embracing our difference and having those conversations that our life becomes richer. And, mm. and and that's really, really why um, 
I get to the end of every episode and I'm like, I wish we could have done this for longer. And I'm also really glad that it's just 25 minutes um, <laughs> because it's, you know, it's neatly packaged. And yeah, it, 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 yeah I, I, I think there are a lot of people who would say that Stephen Bartlett's The Diary of a CEO is fantastic, but it's just far too mm. long. And we're like, well, great. Listen to The Longest Day instead. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I, I do agree with you because both me and Dave started off podcasting for personal development and learning. You know, we started off with an AI podcast to learn more about that topic because we have our own children and we just want to educate them on that. But then we started to get more fascinated by stories from people and learning from these people is great. You know, there's also an opportunity to connect with, like you said, people from different walks of life that you would probably never have conversations with in your social circle uh, until that social circle changes. And you start to think, well, actually, some of these people you would quite happily go out for dinner with and spend time with because they've been kind enough to let you in to some real, you know, um, tough times in their life. Some yeah. people have shared with us. And, and you think, you know, we, we're quite grateful that people have felt that they, they were happy to do that. And, you know, we appreciate that. And this is why it, it fascinates me with the politician element because, um, you know, the big thing with politics, and I don't know, we won't get into politics here because that's another podcast, but <laughs> it is, is there a way we can change the system? So I was delivering a mental health youth course yesterday, and they were saying that so many young people are disaffected with politics and disengaged, and they think that it contributes to poor mental health in some of them because they just think these people are not really out for me, helping me. And is there a way we can change the system? Because we were talking about it and we go, well, is is there something we can do? Is there a legal process that people can adopt to try and go, we're not happy with how these guys are doing things now. Surely we can shift change. Is there a way to do it? Now, <laughs> that's a big question, Liam. Yeah, I was going to say you got And please don't feel pressured to, but it's just to get your perspective on it rather than, you know, let's get that problem sorted today and we'll, we'll slap our hands and go, done yeah move on so yeah it's just to get your ideas around it and you know is there a system is there a process in place where we can change things first of all change is always possible good stuff second of all i'm not convinced that the majority of youth are disaffected again mm. tiktok youtube snapchat sadly a lot of young people have a lot of really interesting things to say. There have been some young people who have set up their own podcasts mm -hmm. and they've gone viral because they're just having conversations about politics mm -hmm. and they're saying, well, you know, throwing this out, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? And they are great models for being able to have effective conversations and to listen to other perspectives. And they're mature enough to create mm -hmm. the space to do that. And, and so there are several questions. One broad brushstrokes is 18 the right age for the voting? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. Is proportional representation a problem? Maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, uh, are there collective campaigns that exist that want to change the color of the government? Absolutely, there are. Uh, are there opportunities for people to canvass for whichever respective political party that they want to? Of course, there are. There's social media, there's newspapers, people can write, people can speak, people can create music, people can do all kinds of arts to comment on what they're seeing around them. Uh, the, the challenge is uh, overcoming the fearfulness that prevent people from being able to 
share their opinion more, more widely. And I think the challenge for the adults, therefore, is to create the safe spaces for youth to be able to do that. Mm. And traditionally, there have been safe spaces for youth in political parties. I'm not sure that that persists today. I think a lot of organizations mm. have actually folded from a youth perspective, which poses its own challenge. But I think just smart, start small. Start, start with the people in your class or in your school or on your street or in your community group or in your sports team or and just have conversations with them and start talking about issues and create a culture where we communicate about those things in a in a healthy manner and that will by nature ripple and that will create change because i think off the back of it as well it was you know, you touched on proportional representation and it would be nice to get a better understanding of that because I'll be quite honest as an adult, I don't fully understand it myself. But when we see what the um, Conservatives have done with putting people in that haven't been voted in, this is where people find a frustration. And I know there's a system in place for that to be facilitated. And it's just a case of when they're going after people um, who they say are benefit cheats, but they're not applying the same effort to tax um, fraud or, um, you know, contract fraud, especially through government contracts. This is where they're, they're, they're finding the difficulty, you know, and there seems to be caveats where politicians have got safeguards in place where they don't face the scrutiny that others do. And as a lawyer, you know, with your background, um, is there elements where we could shape that so it's a bit more of a robust system where fairness and equality um, is represented? Or do you think it is there, it's just not applied? Um, well, I think given the creation of various social enterprises and um, international groups that are addressing issues of transparency and corruption, like spotlight on corruption, <clears throat> uh, the, the, the onus really is on the individual to work out who is already campaigning for those issues and to go mm. and get on board with those campaigns. Mm. And the reason that those campaigns exist is because objectively there is a problem. Mm -hmm. And so if there is consensus that there is a problem, then there is a space and a forum to have a voice on that topic or to, to be supported and to engage in that topic in an informed manner. And um, one of the key challenges of a lot of these organizations that do challenge the government is resourcing hmm. but youth have time youth can go and do internships they can um write every week to their mps until their mp responds and takes notice they can get an entire school to say we will not let you host a talk here unless you take this issue seriously or come to a debate and and participate in this and show us why you're not doing anything about this in westminster hmm. that those are the types of actions that i was encouraged to take as as a as a teenager hmm. Um, and uh, somewhat fearlessly, because debating was a part of society that was well regarded and good practice for adult life. So um, I, I think the organizations are there. I think there is a recognition that there is a problem. I think what I would say, though, is um, government operations do not exist in a straight line. And so to presume that one issue not being dealt with is on par with another issue not being dealt with, I don't think is helpful. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not expressing a view, but I, I do think that um, money flows and tax provisions and rationale for prioritizing one area of the agenda over others, um, it is quite convoluted. 
And I think what I would encourage somebody who feels that way to do is to learn as much as they can about the respective things that they're comparing to understand why they function in the way that they do and who's actually responsible because it may not be the same person that's responsible for two of the component parts. So uh, public narrative, media narrative, political narrative, whatever people are getting at home, mm. obviously has a lot to play in the way that those issues are framed. Um, but I really encourage little activists. I think they're great. And I think that they speak their mind and they, they, they tell things as they are. And I think that we need more of that. But do you mm. think how the world is now, you know, I compare it to when I was like 12, 13. If I wanted to interact I suppose with the world of politics, the options available to me were like watching the nine o'clock news, writing a letter to, as you say, like my local MP. Whereas now, if you want to get politically engaged, it's the, the whole, I suppose, even just your MP is so much more accessible than the the mid to late 80s when I, when I was at that point. Do, do you agree? Do you think like if, if you are that way, if, if you are interested, you can actually start to engage with MPs, local councils. It's it's easier to do now with things like social media, do you think? It definitely is. It definitely is. Because you can work out who a person is without yeah. much heavy lifting. Uh, and you can work out who they're connected to without a huge amount of, of work. And... Um, you can have enough information to come to a decision on a topic because of the internet in a way that you yeah. certainly couldn't when, when I was growing up either. So yeah. the, the, the information is power to some degree, but there's so much information and there's so yeah. much disinformation. And one <laughs> of the wars that we have at the moment is fake news. And that, mm -hmm. that that's really challenging to be able to discern what is true from what is false and what, what is nuanced and what is black and white. But actually, and I keep coming back to disagreeing well, the most important thing is to formulate an opinion. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. It's just that you have one. And that's what I feel like our, our collective civil responsibility is to participate in a functioning society. We, we need to be informed on issues and we need to take a view. Yeah. So, I suppose the... Sorry, what, Simon, one other bit I was going to add to that as well was obviously this ability to disagree. Do you think we have lost that as a society? And also, if we have lost it, do you think we can get it back, I suppose? <laughs> Again, I mean, I have a business interest in diagnosing this as the problem and an yeah, absolute yeah. financial interest in being able to provide a solution. Um, yes, I do think that we have lost the ability to disagree well. And I say this... Um, because the way that we frame political narratives continues to operate in a silo. I'm very happy for people to have whatever political narrative they want to have, but I want them to do me the respect of showing and framing that narrative in context so that I get to weigh up the merit of that narrative. Mm. So I get to decide what I think about how that sits in the broader, in the, in the broader ecosystem. And again, because we communicate to be heard rather than to be understood, we don't bring people along the journey. And so we create a space where you have to agree with me, otherwise you're not on my side. Or, you know, we can't have this conversation because I don't want to hear anything that you have to say. And, and the cancel culture that has become pervasive 
Um, and and this idea that you know people who are public figures aren't allowed to have personal political views that is problematic because mm. we need to be able to have a society where we can express ourselves, however unpalatable those views may be. But I don't get to say that somebody else's views are unconscionable simply because I disagree with them. I can have that view, but I don't have the right to conditionally engage with them or their discourse because it's not something that I uh, agree with. And, and I think this kind of judgmentalism and, and hugely partisan polarized ways of communic communicating about social issues and policy and financial issues and global issues and climate change and, and, and things like that is not conducive to actually moving forwards. And when you strip it back and say, well, what is the point of politics? It's to govern a society well. Are we governing society? No. Are we governing society well? No. Is that a problem? Okay, <laughs> well, what does it look like to do that better? Okay, we've got to have a conversation. Okay, mm. so if we can't converse well, then somebody needs to help us converse well so that we can move things forwards. Because actually that is what we have to do as a human race is move things forward so that we can continue to function as a society. And so, yes, I both think that there is a problem and I do think that there's a solution and mediation helps. Uh, massively, massively, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, I think just building on that, it's it's when your politicians are there and I know they get scrutinized, so um, I haven't you know, been a politician, but when they say, I don't recall, I don't recall that WhatsApp, I don't, and you just think you're not engaging in the dialogue and that's where frustration is coming out. You're being questioned by someone. They want you to share. And, you know, why can't you share that, 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 that actual facts with us? Now, you can understand if there's secrecy and everything else. But to then sit there and go, I swore on oath to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But actually, what I'm going to now do is say, I don't recall. I don't recall something that happened a year ago uh, and a half. And, you know, they're bright, educated people. So they do understand this stuff. I think that's the frustration that finds. So it does need our uh, politicians to engage. So it, would you say it's applying that pressure, Leah, going back to them and saying, this is not acceptable, um, the way you've gone about it? And, you know, being those activists and getting people to put more pressure on their politicians to be held to account, would you say? There is no greater challenge to what you are seeking than political expediency. <laughs> and it's temporary right Every, everybody knows that it's unacceptable mm. i cannot recall i do not remember oh i changed my phone oh, I... mm. yeah yeah objectively it's not acceptable but it keeps them where they need to be right now mm. and so it's a broader conversation about why are we not demanding integrity from our politicians why are we yeah. not um putting the knife in in terms of the, the standards that um, we require under oath. Are oaths worth what they used to be written on? I, mm -hmm. there, there, there are bigger questions here, and I, and I think to expect anything different hmm. <laughs> it, it is what it hmm. is. Um, uh, but I think there is a yearning for change. Yeah. And, and it's not necessarily to go back to the way that things used to be. There is a yearning for change, and that is an opportunity in my mind, because it says that, okay, we recognize that there's a disconnect between what we have and what we need. We also recognize that there's a disconnect between our ability to get from where we are to what we need. 
But as long as that yearning for what we need continues to be there, there's hope for the nation. Yeah. Because I think the longest day podcasts, you know, getting these the the caliber of people on who you can have conversations with and learn a bit more about um, you know, that world is powerful for people to go, well, okay, how do we also ask them questions to say about these things? You know, what do you think about the way this is being conducted? Because we know it's not acceptable. Um, and leaders, like you said, you know, in, from your own perspective around the integrity and the way that you like to lead, because you've you, you've sort of gone against what you've experienced because you thought that was not good leadership. And you're going to make that change through your organization and how you like to conduct things. Do you think, um, you know, there's a way that we can all start to try and chip away in, in the way that you are? Possibly. Uh, I think you'd need to have a very specific motivation to do that. I think what I, I, I have a firm belief that leaders are just people. And it's really difficult to be a person. Yeah. We, we go through so much. Human resilience is extraordinary. And every politician has made a choice and they have to make a litany of choices all day, every day. But I have space for the humanity of, of the people who are sitting through the inquiry at the moment, um, wherever they are in that courtroom. And I recognize that they are choosing to make whatever decision moment by moment, but they have agency and they can make that choice. And it's the same for all of us. We have mm -hmm. agency and we can make choices to be better people and to be better leaders. And whether or not we find the moral fortitude or the impetus to do that within ourselves or from outside is a, is a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. But we do have that agency and it's in that agency that we have the hope to be something other than we are right now. But if we really want a movement, we've all got to step into that agency without fear, without apology and say, I want what's better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'd agree uh, with, mm. I'd agree with a lot of that. The, uh, as you, as you say, the, uh, you may not necessarily agree with people you see speaking, especially like you, obviously with, the, as you've mentioned, the COVID inquiry and stuff like that. But I think sometimes people forget, especially under stressful times and things like that, you are dealing with people. Now, you may not necessarily agree with all of their views, but at the end of the day, they are people. And like you or I, we all make mistakes or we all get things right. It, 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 I think sometimes that's lost. And I think generally as well with politicians, you do forget there is actually a person there. Um, you know, there's a person that gets up in the morning, uh, you know, has Marmite on toast or whatever for breakfast. At the end of the day, they are a person. Um, and maybe it sounds like I'm kind of giving them an excuse, but you you do sometimes, I, I know in my mind, I separate a politician from actually a person, which sounds weird, but it seems like we sometimes forget that. Now, we've... Mm -hmm battered you with a lot of different questions from every sort of area completely and it has been enlightening i yeah the answers you've been giving have, have been amazing so thank you for that i suppose one of the things we always get our guests to do is um 
is to look for, I know we talked about looking forward but is looking forward I suppose what what do you think the next 12 months has to offer in terms of I suppose you personally but also for your business activities like wh- where do you see yourself in 12 months I suppose the general wisdom about consultancy businesses is that there is a time for planting and a time for reaping mm. I pray that we're stepping into the space of reaping but in all seriousness uh, I, I think that is certainly what we're, we're speaking over the, the business we have built a pipeline that if we are able to service even half of it will be absolutely phenomenal and to be able to operate in the different corners and pockets of the United Kingdom and maybe even the US and Canada um, over the next 12 months will be really, really exciting for us. Um, I think we we have a, a vision that is sustainable and we have a lot of people waiting in the wings to, to help us service what is coming. Um, and I think for me personally, I'm really looking forward to being able to bolster the team and feel more supported day to day in in what we're doing. And um, I suppose to step into a different MO as a as a leader, I think when you go from a very, very small tight knit employee base to, okay, maybe we're building a much bigger consultancy here and and what does that look like and and how do we scale and and what's the the vision for that by this time next year I I definitely want to have done a lot more thinking about that and be moving into that direction and I say that as a triumph because if you'd asked me that 12 months ago I would have laughed you off this podcast because I thought that it was just going to be me with you know maybe two people in back office so yeah we've we've got we've got big ambitions um, and we seem to have a an ability to spot opportunities that people either haven't spotted or aren't brave enough to take and get a lot of reception in those. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about continuing to grow. I'm excited about feeling more stable in where I'm living and having a little bit more permanence in being able to serve the community from my home. Um, and I'm I'm looking forward to deepening relationships that I've built over the last few years. And I found so many kindred spirits along this journey that I want to invest in those. And I want to spend more time um, with people that, that make me smile and laugh and uh, pick me up when I'm down. And I want to make sure that I'm prioritizing that along this journey. I think I think we could all agree on that. That's a that's a good 12 months ahead. <laughs> and, um, you know, I reiterate what Dave said. This is probably some of the deepest questions we've asked people on this, yeah, uh, this podcast. So, and it's just come out naturally, which is really, really lovely. Now, um, we always ask our guests for a quote, and you've shared a, love one, uh, a lovely one from uh, a lady called, I hope I'm saying her name right, Maya Angelou. Um, Maya, Maya. Maya. Yeah, Maya so Angelou, yeah. Could you um, just share that with us? And um, why is it that you, you you find that is something that supports you or you find, you know, useful? Yeah. So um, I, I grew up on Maya, Dr. Maya Angelou, um, part of the African-American part of my heritage. Um, great, great storyteller, wrote... Um, I know why the cage bird sings um, amongst a huge amount of poetry. 
fantastic literary woman. And her quote was, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. And I like that because I don't get everything right. Yeah. I, I've had uh, so many people along my, in my life have called me a perfectionist and they wouldn't be wrong. Um, and I, I take failure very hard and I attribute things to failure when I haven't even failed. But in a space of growth, you acknowledge that of course there are things that you can do better, but maybe you didn't have the capacity to do them or maybe you didn't have the yeah. tools or the resources to do them. And so as long as you exercise that responsibility to do better when you know better, you're doing great. Hmm. And I find there's a peacefulness in that. There's a freedom in that, that I want to encourage in my team. I want to encourage in the people that I work with and say, it's okay that you couldn't do that then, but you can do that now. So let me help you do that now. And I can say that and do that because I've believed that and lived that. And that's why I've chosen it. Yeah. That's a wonderful. Good, yeah. yeah. We, we get, a, ver a variety of things but that resonates perfectly as you're right as you say you know you won't get everything right first time and and it goes back to some of the things we've discussed already in that you know you, as a person you need to have understanding that per people aren't perfect and if you allow them to grow you probably you will end up with a better person so yeah no that's it's a lovely quote i'm gonna have a look at um her writing in a bit more detail because that it's it's very simple but it's also very profound isn't it so no it's good but uh yeah so leo um again you know we, we've gone on <laughs> yeah you know we, we start out probably about 45 minutes an hour and then we end up going closer to two so yeah. it always helps us understand that we've had a fascinating conversation we've learned lots we've got some yeah. great insights and as Dave said, you you, you put things so um, eloquently and succinctly, which really does, you know, was really nice to listen to, you know. Mm, so there you. was a, a lovely tone within that throughout, which I found um, really quite comforting. So it, it was it was great to have you on as a guest yeah. and uh, to learn more about your journey and where you've come from and to see some of the insights of, you know, what what your philosophy is. It seems like, you know, that really came across to me and you know where you want to get to you know uh with being present and embracing you as the person and just having mm. the right people in and around you that are going to help you grow and develop as you go through that so just want to say really appreciate you giving up your time to spend with yeah. us and um you know thank you so much for for sharing um you know as much as you did and um, yeah, looking forward to seeing how Broadstairs Consulting grows and develops, yeah. but also the other elements that you, you you've got going on in your life and how that you know starts to branch out for you over the the, the next few years. So, just uh, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I will be we will be sharing in the the show notes as well where people can find you, also all the things that you're involved in. Um, because I think there'll be a lot of interest in it, and and as reiterating what Simon says, thank you very much for giving us the time. It was a, it was a fascinating chat, and as Simon says, they don't they don't last this long if it's not interesting. So <laughs> you know, it, it it was really good. So Leah, thank you very thank much you. for that. Uh, I have a feeling that uh, the business is going to go from strength to strength in the next twelve months. 
Um, and I'll be, I'll keep listening to the podcast as well. I mean, I, I was going to ask who's coming up next in terms of um, <laughs> guests. You can um, actually, I will tell ah. you. Um, first episode of season three is Naomi Smith, CEO of Best for Britain. Ah. And following her is Elizabeth Oldfield, the host of the Sacred Podcast and former director of Theos. Ah, very good. Well, it's, it sounds, it, as I say, if you've not listened to any of the previous episodes, I can't recommend it enough. So I'll be looking forward to season three. But uh, yeah, well, thank you very much, Leah. Enjoy the rest of the day and good luck for next year. And uh, we'll hopefully catch up with you soon in the future. Looking forward to it.